Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, I have the honor of chatting with a good friend, Dr. J.T. Roan, Assistant Professor of African and African American Studies in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. Dr. Roan is on New Books in African American Studies to discuss a range of topics from his upbringing in Tappahannock, Virginia, to his days in undergrad and grad school at the University of Virginia and Columbia University. Discussions also about his writing process, right? Because y'all know I love that. And the importance of Black rural Southern life, to name a few. I hope and pray y'all enjoy the discussion as much as me. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Roan. How you doing today? Hey, Adam, I'm pretty good. Everything is good on my end. How about you? Everything is solid, my friend. Everything is solid. So thank you again for agreeing to come on the podcast. You know what I'm saying? You know, we were chopping it up uh, offline and such. And, you know, you're someone who I really look up to. And so I'm I, I'm blessed and honored to, to have you on to discuss. Man, this is dope, man. We ain't talk about no books. We talking about everything about books, everything about just Black studies, Black study. What are those things? And also your development, your writing, dude, you're one of the dopest scholars, writers, thinkers, whatever superlative you want to put on there. Look, you, ex- you exemplify them, my friend. <laughs> I appreciate you. I really, really do for that kindness. Most deaf, most deaf. And so uh, to begin, JT, because you know what I'm saying, I, you know, we, we, we cool like that. Just mama, it's okay. I know, I know this brother. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? JT, so you rep for your community as strongly as anyone I know in the field, right? What does your home of, of, of Tappahannock, Virginia mean to you as a person and as a scholar? Um, you know, I think that's shifted over time. I've, in many ways, I fled from here. Like, I wanted to get away from here. And that, that's probably in part because uh, being queer and Black in a rural community is not that straightforward. Even though I wasn't fully in touch with that when I left, I knew something about this place I had to get away from. But it, almost immediately when I left, um, first to go to Charlottesville and then later to go to New York, um, I immediately was drawn back to this place on most of the time because I couldn't afford to as a graduate student, especially come home. You know, most of that was uh, a mental passage back. Um, so I it's at first, I think, honestly, being from here was a source of shame for me. I've written a little bit about this in other places, but like, you know, I, I moved to New York with baggy clothes and like with my little draw and not having Red Foucault and some other shit. So I was really, I felt like, I had to to kind of um, scrub all that off. Um, but I think at a certain point, though, I realized like that's the only way I could write was actually to really tap into home, um, the vernaculars of it. And ain't no, honestly, ain't no better um, historian that I've met um, than my father was. Not in the sense that, I mean, he didn't even possess what we might consider a full ability in terms of literacy, reading or writing, but he could tell you about this town and this county and these people from the top to the bottom, who owned the most land, where the nasty hog farm was, 
you know, who was murdered and thrown down a well, like literally from the top to the subterranean <laughs> histories of this place. And so I try to draw on all of that. Um, we I come from shit talking people. So it, it works. That helps uh, the writing. <laughs> Yo, that's that that's what it is, man. That's what it is. And so that that's a really awesome opportunity for us to really talk about family and the meaning of family to the work that we do. Um and, and so with that, can you talk to us also about how Tapahannock shows up in your work as well? Yeah. Um I had started it's a in a couple of different projects, Tapahannock shows up. I mean, I my original my first book project was is my dissertation project um, about Philadelphia, and really the first thing that I ever wrote towards that project was about um, my aunt who my grandmother gave up for adoption in Philadelphia. Um, but like we didn't rediscover them people until the eighties, honestly. Um, and yet, even as we met them and later, they really considered Virginia home. And Tappahannock home, like in a way. So even the first project, like that, con- I mean, I've since intellectualized it and taken it in various directions. But what the kind of epistemologies about place and ecology and belonging and commensality and community that Black people took from places like Tappahannock um, and how that transformed the city is really at the at the heart of that project, um, the first project. But I think, I think too, I've increasingly, around when my father first got sick, um, at this point about five or six years ago, um, I started to write more intensely about out here in a way, um, like in a, in a, in a kind of recall of, and in some ways in nostalgic recall of this place that I consider home, um, that when I leave, I have all these imaginings about what's still there. And when I come back, often it's um, an initial sadness because a lot of the shit that I'm looking for here ain't there no more or ain't here no more. So I think it, I think um, I've wrote a lot of that stuff, like very narrative, including um, my latest piece, probably in between when my father first got sick and when my father died. Um, Now, when my father died, I tried to continue writing that stuff and I did for about a month. And then I realized, oh no, this ain't gonna work, right? <laughs> I gotta stop. Mm-hmm. I, I got back to a place of wanting to forget here, um, mainly because of the kind of loss. Um, so I and, and I, I've also my I went to Kalalu. I, I many people probably don't know this um, outside of a select group of friends that I went to graduate school with. I also write fiction, um, and I haven't I haven't been touching. It's been a long time, especially being Black Perspectives editor for for a while, That since I touched my fiction work. But I also write about this place in a fiction frame. Because there's some shit that, about this place that I can't ever recall. There ain't no archive for it. Um, and I needed something also, other vehicles, other modes of writing to, to get into that. So it shows up in all... I don't think that I've ever written anything that didn't have Tappahannock in, in some ways in it. Um, if I be honest, so. Hey, and, uh, you know what I'm saying? Our new books in African-American studies, brother, we want you to be honest mm-hmm. as much as you are able to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that too, 
you know, usually I ask these kinds of questions a little later in a, a normal book conversation, but you know what I'm saying? We, we, we gonna, we gonna remix this up a little bit. So you recently celebrated a birthday, right? So, you know, happy belated, happy belated. Thanks. Um, for sure, for sure. And so, uh, looking back, let's say maybe 16 years ago, would young JT, young JT, think about that brother. Be surprised at where present day JT is and, 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 you know, where you are in life and the things that you're doing. Oh, hell yeah. Um, I mean, um, <laughs> I'm not sure old JT we even know present day JT, um, in a mm. lot of um, which is a good thing. I mean, I think, you know, Lauren Hill uh, on the uh, uh, much repudiated album, uh, live album, <laughs> you know, she talked about like, we we should change. That's a thing that's a, a reality and embracing that is actually important. Um, I, I mean, I don't think 16 years ago I was in touch with being queer. I think 16 years ago I was trying to escape being Southern and rural in origin. I think 16 years ago I had suffered uh, abuse really from especially uh, especially white folks, teachers, and also honestly, some black scholars as well, uh, <laughs> abuse around those kinds of things and made it feel like I would never, you know, I wasn't a writer at all. Um, mm. I definitely don't, I definitely think that I'm in a, I wouldn't, I could never have imagined being a writer, a writer, an editor, any of that shit. It was never in my frame, even as I thought about doing PhD work. Like the idea that I might actually have a book at some point is still wild to me. So <laughs> hell no, I didn't believe I would. I didn't. I couldn't have seen this from that vantage at all. Yo, that that that's some real that's some real stuff, man. That that's some real stuff. And so, um, you know, because I think that the other part too, right? So, so you mentioned uh, your your um, position as an editor. So you know, we're we're gonna put a pin in that and, and talk about that a little later. Um, but 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 you're right. You know, we. We should change, right? We, in, in many ways, we hope that we are not the person 16 or whatever the number is over the course of multiple decades as the same person. Um, and yet, you know what I'm saying? We, we got to, I, I do think it's a good exercise to sometimes reflect in that way, especially as writers, um, which, you know, I was in a seminar uh, last year with uh, Dr. Deborah Gray White and she began the, the class. And at the end of the, at the end of the day, y'all, we're historians, but at the, at the foundation, we writers, bruh, we writers. And so, and so we should definitely lean into that. And so, um, transitioning to school, um, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I've known you, you know what I'm saying? For, for a number of years, you've, uh, sa- saved a brother, uh, a couple times, you know, mo- most importantly, when my contacts, I, I, I pretty much didn't have access to them anymore. Uh, because they was at the uh, they were at the Indianapolis uh, uh, airport uh, because of a solid twenty eighteen, um, but from that moment on, when we started to get to know each other, I realized, bruh, you are one of the most productive scholars that I know, probably of this generation of scholars, my friend. So to me, I'd love to know, and many of our listeners would as well, what spaces and people help foster your intellectual development. That's a great question. Um, I think I have, I had black teachers because I grew up in Essex County and Tappahannock, 
Virginia and went to public schools here, I had black teachers when I was in like third and fourth grade. And so I can't, people like Mrs. Blanche Washington, who was like, if you don't write this cursive right, then you're not doing, you're not getting out of my class. Like at the time we hated that, but you know, really having black teachers when I look back is really important for my trajectory. I also had some white educators, like this woman named Miss Toby, Mrs. Toby um, was my eighth grade English teacher. And she was the first person that ever like considered me a writer. Like she sent my stuff. Um, she sent my, this short story I wrote to a, um, to a contest. And of course I didn't win shit, but it was like, okay, somebody actually think somebody that's in a position of authority and power actually takes me seriously in that way. Um, I, I had some very trying experiences at towards the end of high school with, a, um, an extremely racist, if subtly racist, um, English teacher who was like, you're, you're not a writer. You never will be. And so I really flee from writing for a long time, um, and really thought I was going to medical school. Um, I don't know how I thought that was going to work. Now the sight of blood or brains or something like that would make me come out my skin. But at that time, I thought that's what I was going to do. <laughs> and I, it really was um, the transition for me to Black Studies at, at UVA that made the difference. Um, a lot of people were involved in that process. Um, first was like Dr. Norman Oliver, who I think now is the Commissioner of Health in Virginia. But I took a, a, a health inequality class with him. It was like, huh, I started thinking, I don't care about the biomedical aspects of health or or any of that. What I really care about is like all the things, all the kind of longer histories and all that that inform health and well-being or the lack thereof. Um, and, but it's really um, a pair of two people in my university trajectory who helped me um, figure out that I wanted to do this kind of work. And that was Claudrina Harold, Dr. Claudrina Harold um, and Dr. Wendy Marshall. Um, uh, Dr. Harold is now the chair of, of history at, um, UVA. And it's probably the reason, probably the only reason I even ever went to a history program was because I tried to model my life, my work after hers and still am, honestly, I still do. Um, she, she didn't, I mean, she taught black studies and just the mode that she taught it, we understood that black studies wasn't just a study of black people, right? <laughs> it was its own thing. Um, but she mm-hmm. never she never distinguished in class the authority from a history text over a novel or over a film or over other kinds of cultural texts. And she produced all of those things. I mean, she has three books, an edited volume, three history books, an edited volume, and that, you know, about I think 10, I think her and Kevin Everson have about 10 short films now. Um, Mm. So that was my model. And I think Wendy, Wendy Marshall, who was denied tenure at at the University of Virginia, was also a really important force and still is in my life um, in terms of thinking and the work I do. She's the type, she, she was a medical, she is a medical anthropologist. And so she really helped me to transition to think about health in a, in a more capacious way. but both, I'm still in conversation with both of them, like on a weekly basis. So <laughs> in different mm-hmm. Um And then I think when I got to, honestly, um, when I got to graduate school, again, I got there with baggy clothes and I was, you know, trying to, trying to speak Foucauldian or something. Um, and I keep bringing him up. It ain't like nothing is wrong with engaging Foucault. I just, you know, there's a way that that hegemon that that's become hegemonic and right uh, it closes people out from certain discussions 
um, when George Jackson might be a much better since he since he was the source of half of what Foucault was thought and was doing anyway, he might be a better starting point. But anyway, I digress. I think um, <laughs> when I got you know I I also had very you know like most graduate students had I faced the history department quote unquote and was like oh shit. Um, I'm not one of y'all, right? <laughs> I came here mm-hmm. because Katrina was doing films and teaching novels and all that, thinking I could do history in that way at Columbia, and that was not what time it was. Um, but within that space, um, really two people, um, Alondra Nelson and Elizabeth Blackmar, all of my committee was very helpful. Um, but those two people really encouraged me as a writer. Um, Alondra especially... Um, really gave me not only like verbal encouragement and engagement with my work, but also practical resources. She put me in touch in the last couple of years with doing the op uh, or my last year doing the op-ed project. And that shit really sealed the deal for me. I had never published a thing, right? I hadn't published anything. And just after that is when I started publishing with Black Perspectives. So, um, so critically, I'm uh, critically, all the women, all the people that I just mentioned are women. I think that's really important. Um, most of them are black women from fourth grade on, um, but also but also two white women who were educators who really encouraged me as a writer. Look, that that's that's what it is. That's what it is. And you know what I'm saying? We make sure that we, that we cite black women up in here. You know what I'm saying? Always, always. Um, and it's also important to to really try to scale and understand. Right. Because as, as folks doing the work that we do in the collegiate, uh, in the collegial and the professional academic and, and friend spaces that we do this work in to understand that just because we are black graduate students, or have been black graduate students that we all have the same kind of intellectual development and also the of um, the access to the same spaces uh, as well. And so that that's kind of the crux of where the question comes from. And with the question of intellectual development, let's move a little further to, to, for me to ask you how and why did you end up deciding to slide to grad school? Right. Who was it? Dr. Harold? Was it, you know, no, who, who, who were the people and or, you know, was it a person that helped to uh, foster that particular idea in, in young JT's head? Um, y- yes. And also experience an experience like probably had I felt like I could be a successful community organizer out of the bat, out of college, which is what I wanted to do. I probably would have not. Uh, I probably wouldn't have pursued a PhD, and, mm. and not at that time. Like when I left undergrad in 2008, I actually had applied for graduate school um, PhD programs, and I ain't get in nowhere. And I was kind of like, okay, cool, let me move on with my life. That ain't for me. Um, I went to the Center for Third World Organizing, actually behind Wendy Marshall, um, who did that program in the 80s, the Movement Activist Apprenticeship Program. At that time, they were based in Oakland. Um, and like I trained as an organizer for a whole summer afterwards. Um, and I really thought that's what I was going to do and wanted to do. And I came back to Tappahannock and I realized that at that moment, me being who I was and also the kind of political situation here and a kind of um, enforced quiescence um, that people were not about to talk to me about the police and shit out here in the way that I wanted to have that discussion. 
And so I it's in that kind of frustration after a year of really trying to do community organizing work that I was like, let me figure out how to do this work in a way that's different. Like, how can I change conversations? How can I push things differently? Um, and I actually, I'll be honest with you. I went to graduate school to teach, um, which looking back interesting. is pretty stupid <laughs> compared to, I mean, I guess considering what people really get a PhD to do. Um, I really went to, I during that year, since I couldn't really get organizing uh, organization off the ground, I started to, um, I started doing adult ed. I taught upward bound students and I taught, um, I taught an ESL, adult ESL class, even though I wasn't that good at Spanish, but <laughs> I, I was trying wow. to work. Um, I got into Frary and all of these people. And I really was, um, it's some of the people that was out there who did a Center for Third World Organizing with me, particularly Natalia Sanchez and Richie Bennett, um, this uh, indigenous uh, Latinx uh, person and Richie, an, an indigenous um, lonely Indian person from the Bay, like they they were like we're teachers, they were educators, and they saw organizing and educating as the same process um, in the kind of radical democratic sense. Actually, mm-hmm. that, that made me want to go. I thought I was going to be a, like a like I was going to be a professor, and that was going to be teaching, and that would be my primary thing. Again, more evidence that I had, first of all, I didn't know what the hell I was getting myself into. And also that writing wasn't at the top of my my list. So mm. wow. That's see, see, I I didn't know about that part. I, I didn't know about that part. So um and so, you know, as you know, Lord knows you know, and many of your colleagues and many of our colleagues know, um, navigating graduate school is that's a skill in and of itself, right? I definitely think that we can agree upon that part. And so for you, as you traversed uh, graduate school at Columbia and the different academic spaces from there, right? How, how did you, how did you navigate and, you know, what spaces, you know, were the ones that you, while in graduate school specifically um, throughout your process that helped you to get through? Oh, I would never have finished if it were not for the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia IRS. Um mm. Manny Marable's creation, even though I overlapped only for a short time with Dr. Marable before he passed, um, that space was critical. That's where all of the at that time, at least at Columbia, that's where all the like one or two black grad students in every cohort from all of the other departments kind of found each other. And it's there that I met really, um, I I have to say that I learned as much from, if not more sometimes, from other graduate students who were around me, just ahead of me or just behind me, um, or in my in my cohort in a broader sense across departments, um, than, I, than I did from my own committee. And that's not a slight at my committee at all. I just think that that's part of the process. Um, and so, you know, I have... A, a bunch of friends from my time at Columbia through IRS, but I think, um, you know, I have a, a cluster of three brothers that really I still talk to pretty much almost every day via text thread. Uh, but Matt Morrison, Jarvis McKinnis, um, and Nigel Cunningham, 
Like, um, in many ways, I would not have finished. I wouldn't have written shit. I wouldn't have done a lot of things if it wasn't for a constant learning and back and forth and conversation with them, um, as well as many others. Um, but so IRAS and and that and and that little group of folks, um, and also um, including just especially through the MA program and and IRAS, just a whole bunch of folks over time. Um, who were attracted to that space either for the MA program or as black PhDs, um, that really, really made, that's the only reason I finished. <laughs> that, the history department mm. was at Columbia when I got there. There hadn't been, I think before me, the last black student was Liz Hinton, who was about four years ahead of me. Um, so meaning there was a large gap, um, at least in the Americanist program. Africanist was another thing, but even though that was also majority white. Um, so it was like, oh no, I can't do this. <laughs> I, and mm-hmm. so I had to find IRAS. Um, and people like people who were never on my committee and who didn't read my writing until after I finished graduate school, people like Farrah Jasmine Griffin. If it wasn't for those, if it wasn't for just sometimes the hellos, I would never have finished. <laughs> so. Look, so, so, so there are certain people in all of our lives where they don't got to even really say no, like full sentences to us. Just like that. Hi, look, going to take your daggum breath away. Look, look, I feel that. I feel that. And uh, here's the thing, JT. I'm sure there's somebody listening now or in the future that's going to say the same damn thing to you. So uh, keep, keep this conversation close. I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. <laughs> so. Um, you know, with that too. So how, you know, obviously we're talking about academic a community. So can you tell us what academic community actually means to you and how do we better foster, you know, black academic spaces or, you know, just, just, you know, academic spaces generally. And, and you know, the third part of it is along with other, you know, academic spaces, how do we, how do we sometimes now, especially in a pandemic, even make this work under these particular circumstances too? Right. I think the basis of all of this work is a, a, a rich engagement with each, each other's thought and writing. And I think that comes, I, that sounds so simple, but it can really be, that can get really lost, especially as you move into faculty like the reality that you need people to engage your work, you need people to read it, you need people to, um, I don't mean an audience in a kind of broad way, but that you need a like close audience that will tell you, don't put that shit out, don't make no sense, or or that that's wonderful, or whatever, you know, any of the gray in between those two points. Um, so first and foremost, I really think it's about reading each other's work. And I say that because I think so much there is, um, there is the need really, especially as black study scholars to put your people on, to make sure that your folks have circulation. If you're in positions of, of publishing or whatever, um, to make sure that your folks is on, but not, to not have that be, to have that be defined by a kind of critical generosity rather than nepotism. Cause it's also mm. folks on and not read nothing that they said and have you and them looking simple. So I think I think really that's where it starts. I think also um just actually finding your finding your community is important. It's taken me a, a tremendously long time to figure that out. 
I think I have, of course, I've had, um, I, as I've mentioned, I had a whole cohort of folks um, at Columbia and in other places before that and, and after that that have uh, propelled me along. It hasn't been until the last probably six or seven months that I really found folks who work on Black ecologies. And that feels home in a way that I haven't felt home before um, intellectually. Um, so it's a it's a process and it changes and you get new projects and home, intellectual home changes and shifts. But I don't I think that's, um, you know, to go with probably the bad metaphor of home. It's about finding home um, and cultivating that. Um, and, and, and also not only looking, I think so much what could develop as community and robust bonds between people, uh, is dissipated and is drained out of folks because we're trained from early to find the people who are far ahead of us and to connect with them. That's fine. It's important. Um, it's important to connect with senior scholars and and stuff like that. But it's also, I take this from organizing work. It's tremendously important to connect with the people beside you, behind you, and slightly in front of you as well, and to really build a network with those people. Again, senior scholars um, are great, and they're important to have in your, engaging your work, engaging your writing and your thinking. Um, But they're not the people that you send your stuff to when it's still raggedy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Look, look. You know, you gotta you gotta have a robust a robust world, um, and I think that comes through actually really reading and really engaging folks um, in critical through critical generosity. Now, you know, now we're getting into my favorite part of the interview process, and we talk about writing and and, and also the process. So, um, you you had mentioned actually critically engaging. I don't want to take for granted that people actually know what that means. So, though this was not on the list of questions, let me ask you an impromptu one then. What does it actually mean to critically engage someone's work? Um, I think foremost, it means to appreciate the work for what it was to be. Um, that's quite different than what it should be or what it should have been. Um, I take this up from one of my... Um, examiners and a person I had classes with up through, um, you know, through my, or or I took a class with and then did an exam with was Ruthie Gilmore, um, who always talks about, who talks about in class and includes in her syllabus, um, generous uh, reading guidelines. Um, and the, the basis of that rubric that she created and that I've, uh, cited her and modeled in a lot of my syllabuses is, to read something for what it is rather than what it ain't. Um, and that's the opposite. I think, especially in the history department at Columbia, at least when I was there in seminars, it was a shred and rip and tear kind of thing. Um, but you realize very quickly, you can't write shit. If all you do is know how to tear other people's work apart. If you don't know what they did, um, even within its limitations, then, you know, uh, then you don't know, you know, you, you ain't, I would say the other thing is, um, recognizing, especially as time goes on, how hard it is to write shit, especially if you're black in these spaces that tell you that your thought is only important insofar as university can mobilize it after a murder, a a police murder or some other shit. Um, Like 
so I think I I think um, critical engagement is reading a work for what it is, um, taking it for that, trying to actually hear what the person is engaged in, and the thought process behind it. Um, I think it also really looks like um, telling people the truth about their work, saying like really this is where this shit didn't go so well is also a part of that. Um, not just being a cheering squad for your friends, but actually telling them when shit ain't work in the way that it should or it could or whatever. Um, and I think that comes in all kinds of forms. I don't, it does, I'm centering the writing in that, but I think, you know, that comes with, all, that comes with checking on folks and, and not in a utilitarian sense, actually looking out for your people, making sure that people in your circle are good. Um, and again, not all, not only on the writing shit, like, are y'all, is everybody eating? And when, sometimes when you're a graduate student, the reality in this in this country is you got to be like, are we all eating in this circle? <laughs> um, sometimes it's $5 on Cash App. Um, so, yeah, I think it, I think it's um, all of that. Um, but most I want to emphasize again and underscore is the kind of um, generous listening and or generous uh, reading. Oof, yes, believe me, I I get that because I I think one of the parts I love most about my advisor, Dr. Dunbar, you know, what's up, Dr. Dunbar? You know, you might be listening. Um, is when she checked up on me as a person, mm. like you know, earlier this semester or last semester rather, and you know, with COVID and everything, and you know, what I'm saying like so 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 to me that critical part like. To me, especially because we're not, like I said, can't take for granted that people know what critical engagement of the work means. I also don't expect everyone to have the same kind of people in their lives that actually care about them as people. Mm. And I think that is critically important, especially in an academic space where we're very vulnerable. Like for a long time, like probably up until this academic, the last academic year, uh, 1920, I was not comfortable uh, 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 giving my work to people that I didn't know, and thankfully, uh, the the seminar at uh, at Rutgers, you know, we, this past year I had it with uh, Dr. Deborah Gray White and Dr. Donna Merch, and you know, and thankfully the way we do it here is that we have a, a full year seminar, so we're with the same folks in AFAM from from sp- uh, from fall to spring, and I could tell that I trusted these people. Because I transferred, right? So I didn't come in with these folk, um, or uh, not all of them, anyway. And so I say that to say, uh, yeah, you're 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 very right that there were people that'd be like, "Hey, bro, what what this is? What what this is? What, mm-hmm. what this is? I, I don't know." But it's like, but that but that that's the work right there, letting your guard down uh, over time. Obviously, it ain't overnight. Um, and so that that to me, like, whew. Hey, you speaking to, to to all the choirs right now, my friend. Yeah, and I think I think this is something I mean, people can definitely there's good reason and we can all point to it for not letting certain people or people that you don't know intimately into your work. Because especially in different positions, if somebody has 10 graduate students and can unleash them to go look at an archive that you're looking at. They book about your work could come out before your book even see the light, even finish dissertation. So there's real reason to be skeptical about certain people. And I've had encounters, especially with 
um, white scholars who will remain nameless, but, you know, wanting to see chapters and work and actually in email lying about how they came to that engagement with my work, but still trying to get it and trying to act like telling me that they were going to cite my shit was going to absolve the fact that they wanted to know what archives and other stuff I was talking through. Um, so that's a reality. But the other thing is, I mean, I'm from, again, this is where Tappahanna comes up, maybe in, not, in the more unsavory ways. I'm of the mind, if somebody start presenting my work, we're going to co-present it every time they present it. So <laughs> if it's a Zoom mm-hmm. call, if it's a Zoom call and you know you present my work, you might as well go ahead and send me the link. I'm going to be on there with you. We're going to divide every stipend. Every time you at the conference, I'm pulling up a chair. So Pull up. <laughs> what I mean, what I mean by that is only you can write what you write in a certain kind of way. And so that does with trust and with time, it is really important to um, to find the people that you really can be like, this is a mess. It's very it's it's embryonic. Can you help me figure this shit out? Um, and to know that they'll do that work with you alongside you. Um, and and in a and I th- Rutgers, I think. Once I got to Columbia and I heard more about what Rutgers history department was, I was always, always envious of the very practical aspects of the program. And that's one of them, the year long seminar. I don't know why everybody don't do that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm glad that I'm glad to hear that, that the way that that works for you and is working for you. Um, Cause I don't, I think um, mostly I was trained to be skeptical and afraid in the way that you described. Um, and had to unlearn some of that. So, look, it's, it's all about that 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 growth. It's all, it's all about that growth because Lord knows, like, and they're and they're still, um, they're still like times like to give an example. Like when I was in my master's at Simmons College or Seminole University in Boston, I actually had a friend from FAM that I would actually pay. Because we went to we went to school together, I know her. You know, what I'm saying Kimberly Kimberly Elliott right now, and so, um, she, bro, like when I tell you, I paid. Like I literally paid her to help, like, uh, edit my stuff because I actually I trusted her enough, like because we went through the fire of uh of, of FAMU's uh history department shout out to you dr young you know what i'm saying you know university of memphis in the house you know cast tech detroit in the house um and so for me those those times and, and i'm glad that i've grown first of all i'm glad i even had the money to be able to do that because lord knows that that i don't i'm looking back that that's i can't take that for granted but also realizing that that is not sustainable First of all, I have to learn how to even edit my own stuff. And I didn't ever even realize what the hell editing was until like six months ago. I got as well and I didn't know what the hell that was until I literally crowd a community source it on Twitter. And I looked at people's stuff and I was like, oh, oh, oh okay, th- th- this is really what it is. So that, may- that makes me think about habits, makes me think about habits. What are your writerly habits? Because you you must write a lot. Right. So, so, so tell us, tell, tell, tell the body, what are your particular writing habits? Um, you know, probably one of the first times I felt really affirmed in my, if you want to call it a habit or sometimes it might be called better called a crisis, um, (laughs) uh, reading in the, uh, the round table a few months back 
um, up on Sadia Hartman's Wayward Lives. Her and Sarah Haley's accountant of of Hartman's archival process. I'm actually mm-hmm. full on writing mess. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I always have about twenty things that I'm working on, and not really twenty. I, solidly, probably about three or four. I can't write anything for more than about forty five minutes or an hour in the same vein without switching. And so what mm. I do is I write every day, um, you know, weekends, weekdays. I do try to some uh, I have been trying more to take a day off where I don't look at any writing. Um, but mostly I write every day and I normally write at least I have at least three things that I'm working on at all times. I also don't pair. And at, at certain moments, this got me into trouble. I don't pair reading closely with writing. Um, in the sense that mm. I like to read things that are not related to what I'm saying. Now, I I I go back and read stuff after. Sometimes, obviously, when I'm initially coming to ideas, I've read stuff. But I really like right now. I'm writing fiction. I'm writing about Virginia, um, in both fiction and nonfiction stuff. I'm really reading about Thomas Sankara. Um, like it, it, like it's a different context. Of course, what interests me is like the kinds of work in Burkina Faso that he wanted to do around land before he was assassinated. Um, but in a one-to-one sense, it has nothing to do with what I'm writing. Um, that helps me. I, I heard Alondra Nelson describe it recently in a um in a support group that she um came and helped helped uh me and some other junior scholars uh, out with talking about her process. She described that as like just filling back up your well, like reading stuff that is good and that's interesting and that's important, but not necessarily straightforwardly what you're writing about at that moment. Um, and again, that's different. It depends. I mean, sometimes it's archival. And so I am reading that, um, but I'm not reading. If I'm writing about move, I'm going to read about move more in the secondary literature after I've written about move based on archives than I am before or during, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and I also, I also, it takes me a tremendous amount of time to write anything. And like, so for example, the piece that came out on the transformations um, channel at LARB the other day on black ecologies in the top water, they, I wrote that piece off and on probably for four years. Right. Um, in, wow. different, in different places. Um, it takes me a long time to do anything. Um, I have black perspectives sometimes allowed me and pushed me to think about doing quick turnarounds. But even that, half the time I've drawn on paragraphs that I wrote in some other document two years ago. Um, that's all to say that I just write it every day, not even necessarily having a a set venue or space or essay or page or whatever for the writing, but writing every day and then just seeing what the hell you got when time brings new questions and new thoughts and new reading brings new thoughts and new questions is really my process. Um, It's also very, very messy. I am anybody, any of my students who've ever been grad and undergrad from Cincinnati, from Smith, when I was a postdoc to Cincinnati um, and then now at ASU will tell you that my desk is always a tremendous heap of junk, um, paper, mm. books, 
everywhere I sit and write is a mess. Um, but but that's part of it for me. And Kevin Kwashi, Dr. Kevin Kwashi, who was at that time when I was at Smith was there, um, really helped me to distinguish between being messy, which can be generative, um, or a mess, which is just like you a mess. You ain't did what you were supposed to do. Um, and I think, again, Hartman, reading about Hartman's archival process helped me to really be like, okay, I can take ownership of this. Um, and I would say, and editing is your, editing is so important. And I think, you know, your own processes with that, but also having outsiders, both your friends who will read your stuff and give you sort of larger feedback. And editors who will be like, this part just don't make no sense. Like, I, there's nothing wrong with, there's never been a great writer that didn't have editors. I don't care what nobody tell you. People need editors. Um, so I have, at different moments, I've embraced working with editors in the same way that you described it. Not just in, in a kind of line edit way, but like, talk. can you, can I pay you to help me rap about this piece and for you to read it closely? Um, I had a very particularly um, great experience uh, with Takia Hamilton in that regard, because Takia is like, look, you're very conceptual and theoretical, and I'm very like practical, nuts and bolts historian. And here's how, here's my reading of this, and this part don't make no sense at all. I need that. <laughs> I need people mm. like that. Um, so, so that's you know, sharing it and getting feedback is really a part of that process. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I was going to say something else, but I, I think that's, I don't lost what that was. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, no, ho- hopefully you can find it. Hopefully you can find it. We, we still got a couple, we got a, quite a few, you know, other topics to get to, man. Uh, the time is moving and this is a good, this is a good and generative conversation for, for us all. And, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Um, so, so for me with that too, so we talked about your habits, right? What they are right now. How did they develop, and especially from right from I was gonna say from slavery to freedom that John Hope Franklin thought is in my head because I'm 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 doing the comp stuff so that's that's ingrained in my head. Um, but from but from Columbia to ASU, right? How has your process developed? Because I think that for a lot of the folks who are in graduate school and or who are who are looking out into the the job market they're they're probably thinking like what what's my process now and the evolution of it all so can you talk about your evolution in in your writing process and 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 your revision process as well i probably wouldn't say evolution so much as i would say returns again i have Hmm. i constantly come back to things that i knew before that stopped working for me and then i come back to them and they work in a new way for me and with more intensity one of the things that i know for example, and this goes back to what I was I forgot I was gonna say, is I I have always tried to build some kind of incentive into writing for myself in the sense of like every morning I have like when I lived in New York, I went to the Hungarian pastry shop for a good two years straight almost every day, um, because they had croissants with apricot and butter. And coffee, <laughs> um, and I wrote, mm. and I began my reading there, and I started my writing there, and then I would go later to IRAS and write more, and then I would go 
so place and and moving through different places is something that I've continued to do. That's made the COVID thing really hard. Um, and now I just find myself moving from one, like when I was at a, still in Phoenix or Tempe, just before I came to Virginia, I found myself writing at one desk in the house and going to another desk in the house to write something else. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I don't think, I think it's, um, Virginia is very much returning here is very much a part of my process for every project. Like I said, it pops up and crops up in all of the work, but also coming back home and regrounding myself in that way um, really animates me to write. I think also that's all of what I'm saying, I think centers on place, like in a micro quotidian phenomenological way as a writer that I go from a coffee shop to a a desk to somewhere else that triggers thought. Um, But also like going, going home, really coming home and really, um, and then going back to the desert or going back to New York or some other kind of geography that that is really, I guess, part of the, the process. I don't, I return to those things. Like I forgot for a long time that the ways that coffee and a croissant can animate me this summer, I've been writing mad shit based on the fact that I'm going to get some coffee and a croissant in the morning right here in Virginia. So, <laughs> um, mm. Yeah. No, that that's that's a one, and that and that's that's good to know too. Um, in terms of what it is that we are so used to, like what what are we used to doing? And 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 so yesterday, um, Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson had her uh, hashtag slavery archive uh, book book club uh, talk, and uh, she, she she talked about setting the mood. Right, having that consistency of uh of the space, right? So for some people it might be incense or essential oil or a walk around, you know, your neighborhood or something, but finding whatever works for you and trying to stick to it. Um and so 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 her words from yesterday are ringing very clearly in, in my head, uh especially based upon what you're speaking of, uh, JT. So 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 I I love this, right? So it's a beautiful transition. If you, you know, you talk about space, right? If you had all the money you needed to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space, what would it look like? Paint the picture for the listeners, my brother. Um, It probably would be, um, first of all, we have some land around it because I think walks and meandering and all of that, um, really, really is important for the work for me anyway. So we have some land on it. It would definitely have a, uh, you know, I know coffee is bound up with all kinds of shit, violence and histories of the, of violence, but it also we have a, uh, express a nice espresso machine. If I'm being real, <laughs> I, I, hey, I told you all the money, all the money, some tea or some shit. Um, it would have lots of windows. Cause I think again, part of that meandering is not also the kind of, actual pedestrian meandering is like you know intellectual meandering that is that comes with daydreaming and i think i'll end with this it would be colorful as hell i think you know and have a whole bunch of old shit and new shit and all of that you know curated in it just prompts i think meandering allowing the mind to meander um as a writer is really important because you can really spin your wheels deeply in one place and that's important but you also have to 
part of doing PhD work and writing anything is also charting where you're ignorant at and where you ain't going to never learn some shit and where, you know, so meandering allows for that and it to not be disciplined and kind of hard, but to have kind of softness to it. Um, so a space that allowed meandering. Love it. I love it. Is is there a lake? Is there a body of water around as well? Oh, definitely. River. I think um, river. Okay. again, I think that's such a rivers for me are always um because I grew up on a big one. Um right. you know, not on it on it, but near it. Um they always inspire me. So definitely a stream or somewhere the water is never the same from day one to day two. Mm. Hey, that that's beautiful. Like I, I'm, I'm loving the picture that you're painting right now. It, it's it's really getting me excited and and uh, helping me to 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 dream because um you know my family you know they're from uh we're, we're from you know the Cape Fear region in North Carolina and uh in the uh, right outside of Columbia, South Carolina as well. Along with my dad's family being from uh, the Low Country, so for me the Carolinas and um and water and and such though funny enough i can't swim so that's always been like kind of like the odd the odd aspect of it but um but 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 you're right just the geography of it and and knowing that if something were to happen i know where i can just stay for the free like if i need to write my family's already told me hey man pull up pull up and hang out in south carolina for a year or two um and and knowing that and, and it helps me to to want to be more involved in the space and so, so I definitely hear you on that one. And so, you know, we talk about the work a lot here. So what does it mean really to do the work that you do, right? What, what does it mean to you to, to, to involve yourself in all the, of the different work that you're doing? Um, and, and you can take this at, at any kind of way that you want. A lot of it is just me trying to figure some shit out for myself. And for the communities to which I hold myself and am held accountable, and a lot of them are not other academics, although that sometimes includes other academics. It's also like, um, can I try to tell stories, especially when I'm writing in the mode about Virginia, but also about Black folks in Philly that that deeply honor um, Black possibility, knowledge, epistemologies, and rather than just seeing um, Black folks as victims or the creators of their own shit, um, problem-wise. Um, but to see Black folks as the progenitors of useful and meaningful information, knowledge, wisdom about disorder, future orders, past orders, um, that's really where I, um, the ethos that I try to maintain in the work. Um, and I think that I try to extend that. I've tried to extend that in relation to doing editing work and other kinds of work that aren't just um my own writing like can we build and i i really take the ethics of community organizing into my writing and into my work and i think again that goes back Gil, ruthie gilmore's generous reading guidelines um you know actually doing organizing work and learning from people who were into frary and pedagogy of the press kind of stuff um and like I see writing as part of um up as part of that I see editing as part of that work to build the world that we need to practice the world that we need um even if it doesn't even if it can't unto itself eclipse this shit and and move it out the way for what we need next 
um, it rehearses it. It allows for, and that's why I think in, that's why I always at some point in a kind of monthly or bi-monthly cycle come back to writing fiction because some shit just ain't possible. It ain't no archive for it. Um, and I find that I need to, um, I find my, I find more, like Morrison's, I can't get the quote exactly right, but Morrison's like point that, you know, I'm trying to use writing to fuck some shit up. Um, you know, like honestly, um, in, 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 in relation to, to our communities, to rural black people, um, to other people that whose histories resonate with that, um, around the world and beyond, you know, the U S and, and, and this context. So I hope, I hope that kind of gets at what you were asking. Yeah, most definitely trying to get to the heart of it all for, for, for someone like yourself. And so to, to add on to that as well, what and or who inspires you to do the work that you do? Um, I think it's, it's not a, it's not a singular answer. So many people. Yeah, yeah. You you can do you can do the whole list if you want to, or as many that you can th- right. that you can think about. Yeah. Honestly, I think about the raw. It's ancestral. I think about the kind of raw capacity of storytelling um, that rural black women like my grandmother Elsie had, um, or that my father had. I'd say before he was a historian, my. Uh, my grandmother was a rhetorician. Like she put some formulations of curses and shit together. You like, damn, was that even? <laughs> that did not exist before you just said that as a thing. Wow, I can't unsee that shit. Um, I take I so I think ancestrally, I draw a note. I'm inspired by those people. Of course, there's a lot of writers, dope ass writers, and a lot of dope ass friends who are writers that inspire as well. But it's really this. It's really after I realized that my writing power came from my vernacular, my country shit, my, um, the way that, I mean, my father used to say this thing, like where he wouldn't say, he wouldn't call somebody a dog or something like that. He told (laughs) one time out of nowhere, he was like, and I told him to eat shit and holler at the moon. And like you can't wow. make this up, right? You can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't make this not this at all. And so I think like that's who I, who I really try to honor. Like, can I write about these serious things and these histories, but really honor the fact that that's the pop, that's the way to have writing power is to tap into that. Um, so again, I hope I'm answering your question. Oh, yeah, you know, for sure. No, you definitely are. And often you've talked about AIHS, which is the African-American Intellectual History Society. Uh, Shouts out to, you know, Dr. Blaine, Dr. Farmer, you know, Dr. Cameron, the whole crew, Dr. Burr, you know what I'm saying? What's up? What's up? Um, And so, you know, you you talked about uh, being in, I think the the term would be the outgoing uh, editor um, or co-editor, rather, with uh, Dr. Sasha Turner who is now at Johns Hopkins uh, University. And so can you talk to us about what AIHS, your, your, your experience with AIHS, and also what you've learned about writing and editing, right? Because my friend, you you you, you and Dr. Turner, y'all, y'all was, y'all, whew, that, that was a lot. Yeah. Um, first of all, shout out to Keisha Blaine, um, because again, 
she put me on in relation to being able to write for that space. I came out of the op-ed project. I started having some pieces. I had a piece in Pacific Standard, but then immediately I started writing um, for the blog and Keisha like embraced that and supported it. Um, and all the way up through doing senior editor work was always there in a, um, in, in a often quiet supportive role um, in that, in that space. Um, I never thought I would be no damn editor. First of all, I can barely see. And I mean, literally, um, like without my contact, <laughs> like I'm literally like probably legally blind. Um, so that's that. Um, I can't, I be, I can't catch, I'm typo Timmy. I can't catch my own typos, let alone mm. other people's. So, you know, the idea that I was going to be an editor was foreign to me. Um, but uh, Again, shout out to Keisha and other folks that were Ashley Farmer and other folks who were in positions of leadership in AIHS who were like, no, nah, but you can do this work um, and inspired me to do it. I think, um, you know, a daily is a lot. And especially um, to do that kind of work in the wake of someone like Keisha, who is um, who does that so well, who did it so well and does it so well. Um, it was a lot. It was a big uphill battle at a certain point, at certain points. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm not sure I ever want to edit again. Uh, we'll see, but it is, <laughs> it is a lot. You learn a lot about the good, the bad and the ugly of the Academy. Um, I have some unsavory stories that I won't, you know, belabor listeners with hearing, but you know, some senior scholars is ungenerous as hell. And it's just a reality. Like, some people who have published a lot of work actually don't know how publishing works. Um, <laughs> so, wow. you know, in a sense that, you know, they are not enough about publishing to know that, you know, a junior led thing with graduate students working on it ain't going to be the same as the New York Times. Um, <laughs> so Amen. it won't be the same experience. Um, I think for good often, but you know, anyway, that's a thing. Um, I take it as such a great honor to have done that work, to allow um, space and to create space and to maintain space for folks who I know, um, who are fac- from faculty, junior faculty, down to um, down to folks who are undergrads and MA students and PhD students, to just provide a space where folks can like do that work and have it circulate. Um, I take that as a great honor and I will forever hold on to that experience. Um, I'm also very excited about um, pivoting out of that work. One, because I think Tyler is going to do a wonderful job and it's, um, I think I trust, I trust Tyler's vision for doing black studies based on his own work. And also just the really, really from what I've heard um, from some of the grad students who work with him more directly, like, He's just a good brother. So, and and in all the senses. So I'm excited. It's and it was time for us to get out of the way. I think, um, you know, it's not sustainable to do a daily, um, over a long, long period of time, um, considering where you know where the resources were. But it is, I think, um, it's something that I'll forever hold on to. And I'm trying to take some of that energy as I start this new initiative at ASU and Black Ecologies and whatever else comes afterward to be like, yo, like, actually, we can um, have junior folks saying shit. That's a that's something I'm not going to lose, hopefully. 
And hopefully if I do, somebody smack me. (laughs) (laughs) No, man, no, that's beautiful. That's beautiful because, look, I've I've gotten to know you through Black Perspectives and and the organization. And, you know, you've blessed my life. You've blessed so many of, you know, the hashtag quarantine happy hour fam. You know, shout out to, to Antoine and Elise and Aya and Brad, Dr. Bradley Craig and, and the whole crew, you know what I'm saying, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kimberly Monroe as well. Um, and so it, it's, it's beautiful because, honestly, you, you've helped me in so many ways. And I think, so I interviewed um, Dr. Leslie Harris about a book that she co-edited. And one of the things that she talked about is doing some some of the work that she's done around slavery in the university. She said that when she was at Emory, I believe it was uh, Dr. Earl Lewis who was in M- admin over there, and they were doing the work on that. That she that 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 Dr. Lewis allowed her, whoever it was, to let her "quote unquote" play in the sandbox, and the sandbox meaning just like being creative. Right. Just 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 having a space to think creatively about the future of black studies and of the different, you know, areas that we're working within. Right. You're talking about black ecologies. I'm working on black Appalachian history as well. And so just thinking about the ways and the spaces that can help foster those ideas and black perspectives is the space that does it. And you have been one of the main folk that have allowed that to happen. If for no other person, then my dog on self. So I, from, 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 from the kettle black to you, my friend, thank you. No doubt, fam. It's, I mean, you do your work. So it's in, in no way a thing, really. I'm just trying to, you know, I've been trying to just be a space and be a resource for folks. I know folks did that for me. So it's real. You did the work. You've been doing the work. So I appreciate you. For having shit for us to even run while I was editor. <laughs> so. Hey, there it go. There it go. And and there were some times where you just hit my inbox. It was like, hey, I don't, you know, everything good, man. You know what I'm saying? Because, hey, sometimes it's, you, you know you got to do something, but it's sometimes it's like that. It's that, 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 uh, that polite, you know, email push. So I appreciate you, fam. I appreciate you, though. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, a couple more before we wrap up. Um, so, like, you know, I, we talk about, you know, all the, all the areas and, and the spaces and the places that you rep. But more than anything, I think you rep hard for the rural South, right? You rep hard for the rural South and you make folk know about your community roots. Speaking about black studies specifically, do you think the rural U.S. black South, right, to be very specific here, has been sufficiently covered in black studies? Um, I think it's a space to which, because of its relation to ancestral, our ancestral histories, um, it's a, it's a state, a space of constant return. So I think there's been, every generation has a kind of return. Um, you know, whether that's, you know, Zora during the the new Negro era or, you know, that's us, that's you trying to do Black Appalachia now. Those aren't the same project, but they are, they are returns to that space. Um, and they're, it's required. I think, I think we definitely 
have to connect with and should connect with and continue to forge connections with the, the larger diaspora, I think most of that connection will actually be most fruitful when we also think about our very sort of local and specific origins on these places in the tide water, you know, the low country, other places that are, you know, 30 or 40% of the people that are African American, like have some ancestral uh, connections to. Um, and then of course the deep South as well, differently and with a different sort of historical trajectory and, t- and temporality. But so I, I don't, I don't think it's so much as comprehensively covering so much as it is. We always got to return to that um, because it's, it's in, in many ways, it's home vexed and complicated and beautiful. It's home, um, collective home. So um, I think, I think there, it, we have a new generation of folks, um, you know, who are working on black folks in the South. Um, and I think that's I think it's important because it's different. Um, it's a different moment. And what we're going to find in that quest is different because the questions and the time and the politics are different. Um, but what I'm encouraged by, I think after, at, you know. This post 70s return migration um, and Sunbelt development uh, are two kind of overlapping, but not coextensive things. Like people going to Arizona and Atlanta and all of these places in general in the U.S., as opposed to New England or Detroit, um, that's a collective, that's a national phenomenon. But mm-hmm. you can't understand why Black communities is going back there without understanding the vernacular and public and different cultural texts that talk about, you know, one that popped right in the mind. I don't know why randomly, but Anthony Hamilton in some song talking about, I'm going with it. I can pick tomatoes, right? There's something mm. about the land and the waterscapes in that space, especially at our moment of having left on Mars up through the seventies, realizing from the forties and from the twenties and probably actually from the 1880s through the 1970s, that what we went there to look for wasn't never there and that it was going to be terrible and that there's, and I don't just mean, I mean, that's sometimes like very um, quotidian and phenomenological tracing back and forth, but also a collective thing. Like the Northern urban modernity wasn't it. (laughs) Um, It ain't the future. In fact, that oil shit going to kill us all. So I think, I think we're at a new moment, but I think it's a return much like other ones that have been rehearsed in black studies before. And ain't nothing wrong with that. I get that from, um, what is, I'm not going to mention it cause I forgot the person name that quick. So <laughs> okay. that was all good. Um, the follow-up to that question then is black studies again. Can you speak to us about, where is black studies going, right? Where Where is black studies going in, in, in your humble opinion? Everywhere and everywhere. Shit. <laughs> I think we, black people everywhere. Geographically, it need to go everywhere. I think conceptually, it need to go everywhere. I'm excited about stuff that's going on that's challenging. Um, I think about, um, um, I think about some of the work around uh, pleasure and, 
violence. And I think about some of the questions around the animal and black studies. There's all kinds of exciting shit that probably 10 years ago, if you had asked, nobody would even thought that that was a thing. Um, I think that, so I think I'm not, I don't, I don't want to say too much cause I don't want to be, you know, prematurely prescribed, proscribed what that should look like. I mm-hmm. think people should just do their work. Um, you know, be engaged with black thought in a long and extensive sense and read it. Um, but I think black studies is, is poised to really, and it always was to really have a new understanding of the whole damn world. And we shouldn't stop with anything less than that. Um, at anything less than that. Amen. Amen. And so this will be the, the, the question that get us uh, on up out of here. So it's a fun one. At least I hope so. If you could resurrect five people for a five course meal and could ask them anything, what five people would you choose to resurrect for a five course dinner? Damn, this I saw this question before, and I, you know, I'm gonna be honest, I prayed that we wouldn't get there. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> um, def, June Jordan, right now, from some stuff that I've been thinking and writing about, June Jordan would be one of them. Um, definitely. Um, I think I've, I'm taking this in part from Randy, uh, uh, Sadler about, um, about her, what she's been doing in relation to thinking about people like, um, thinking about people like June Jordan and Tony K. Bambara, black, black feminist thinkers been had a whole bunch of shit going on. So <laughs> that, like most of the shit that we think we ask and knew they already thought about. So June Jordan is definitely one. Maybe this is probably um, cliche, but I think I would like to rap with the boys. Mainly, I think my questions with the boys would be like, I would ask him some critical shit too. Um, it wouldn't just be, I would I would fanboy out with June Jordan. Uh, the boys, I would have some skeptical questions along with the fanboy shit. Uh-huh. Um, probably like, for real, for real, an unnamed ancestor. Somebody that saw some shit that I that I could never recall um, and right. would never be able to find. That's three, um, right? Three. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe Bob Marley for real. <laughs> um, I, like his interviews, I'd be mesmerized by Bob Marley interviews. Um, and I think like you know, not just because of like Rasta mysticism or none of that, but like just. Just experientially and otherwise, like I think he would be interesting as hell to talk to, um, and maybe Patrice Lumumba, even on a so, yeah, I don't I don't speak French, but I think um, uh, Lumumba Lumumba is I'm fascinated by what he wanted to do with the Congo. It's a lot of those folks that I probably like. I'm on a kick right now where I want to know like. These uh, African socialists or or radical African leaders who most of them were assassinated, like they had a lot of shit going on. Um, so uh, he would be the fifth, I guess. Oof. Yo, that that's that's a killer list. That's a killer list with a translator. <laughs> with, with Lumumba, but um, but but nah, nah, that that's an incredible list, and you know you can only imagine just. And I think the cool, the the part I love about this question is you're not only there, right, to talk to them 
imagine the conversation that they would have amongst themselves. Like that's the part that I think would be dope. So like your ancestor, right? Your, your, your uh, unnamed or unknown ancestor talking to a Du Bois, right? Talking to a Lumumba, talking to a June Jordan and the kind of questions that they would probably all have for your own ancestor. Right. Yeah. And along with yourself. Right. I ain't even sure. You know, that's part of my skeptical questions for the boys. I'm not sure the boys could handle one of my ancestors. You know, some rat. I mean, he had a lot of issues with some ragtag, shoeless, shirtless black people from the South. Um, so that part that he might not have the best conversation with them, but that that might be them getting in his ass. Um, but I think definitely some of the June Jordan, I think, especially with pro- she need to be at the head of the table. <laughs> I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Well, well, JT, this has been an incredible conversation. Like, time literally has flown by in ways that you're like, I believe, number 70, because I did an interview a couple months ago with Dr. Um, uh, Jennifer Morgan that's going to that's gonna come out soon. And let me tell you, the time has flown by incredibly. And I'm so happy that we can finally, you know what I'm saying, get this conversation on wax and, and and thank you again, my friend. And this this is incredible. No doubt, I appreciate you, and and I want to encourage you, fam. Like you're doing it out here, you know, you're doing the writing, you encouraging folks to share their work. All of that is really the kind of is the work. So thank you. I'm honored to be on on the plate with you. Hey, man, no, it, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. And so once again, thank you, JT, for joining me today on New Books in African-American Studies. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you're interested in more New Books in African-American Studies content, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please, please subscribe to New Books in African-American Studies. And if you are so inclined and or moved by this conversation and, and the others in, in the archive, please Rate us and review us as well wherever you get your podcasts. And once again, my name is Adam McNeil from New Books and African American Studies channel, a channel on the New Books Network. It's over and out.